0: be seated. <clears throat> the ancient Greek poet Theognis wrote, best of all for mortals is never to have been born, but for those who have been born, to die as soon as possible." In our day, film director Woody Allen memorably articulated the same spirit when he said this, More than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. There's nothing like a grumpy poet and a depressed film director to warm your heart, is there? These two voices of despair may be a bit shrill, but hopelessness is an ever-present malady of the human soul. Under the weight of relational pressures, shattered dreams, trials of many kinds, our hearts easily succumb to the dark mist of despair and hopelessness. And despair inevitably spawns all manner of self-destructive life choices. It seems as if all just continues to spiral downward. Theognis and Woody Allen would claim there's no way out of this despair. I think most people would resist such a negative assessment of their lives when facing daunting trials, people will naturally turn to their center for support and strength. And they may not even know what that is, but under those pressures they find it. They come back to something that provides them with stability, with security, some glimmer of hope in something. The problem is that when that center fails to hold, yet deeper despair sweeps in to fill the vacuum. It may be indeed where such words come from. People who have come to honesty with the fact that nothing holds. There is no anchor point. There is no center that really sustains us in the trials of life. And so they speak their words of discouragement to us. As we consider these matters this morning, I ask the question to each of us, where is your center? And does it hold? Is it solid? Where do you solidly anchor your soul when the gale force winds of suffering strike? Or just more simply, when the nagging trials of everyday life pile up around you? Where do you turn? Where is your hope? As the Apostle Paul continues to disciple the Thessalonian believers in the second chapter, if you'll make your way there, of the second book, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As he continues to disciple them, the center that holds for the followers of Jesus Christ comes to surface in these few verses that we'll consider as it closes out the first section of this book, beginning at verse 13 of chapter 2. Now the Thessalonians were not, I don't think, on the brink of utter despair at the moment. But they were facing, think of this, get the context, they're facing stiff persecution. You're doing what's right, and other people are making your life very hard for it. That's a discouraging place to be. And on top of this, they've received this false report that they've now entered into the day of the Lord. As if it's not enough that others are persecuting us, now God Himself is beginning to pour out His judgment upon mankind. And here we are. So, Under all of this pressure, all of this difficulty, there's, there's a place of great hopelessness that's a temptation in this setting. And will their anchor hold? Will their center hold? Under this severe pressure, it's instructive to witness how Paul counsels these disciples. It doesn't sound very much like something coming out of our day and what would be popular in counsel to them but we witness what he sees as the Christian center when assaulted by a world that is hostile to the faith. I thank God for such correspondence. We're not playing games here. It's not theory. It's not somebody that's leading a seminar trying to make a lot of money by telling us basically what we want to hear. This is a man writing to people under really severe trial. And as he talks to them, it's almost as instructive what he doesn't say as what he does say. We do need, in coming to this concluding statement in verses thirteen through seventeen, to gain a, a real good sense again of the context of the book. It really falls apart this section if we don't do that. So let's labor a bit in that as we consider those who are persecuting the Thessalonian believers. Chapter one and verse eight, chapter one and verse eight, we hear they hear that God, for those who do not know God. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The hard statement, but a true statement. As they consider suffering and persecution, this is one thing they must consider. As we look at the false teachers, chapter 2 and verse 1, he begins with this, "...now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Then he will talk about the rebellion, what will come in the day of the Lord, what comes before the day of the Lord." chapter 2, verse verse 3 and following, Paul will, in this section, speak of this lawless one who will lead a rebellion against God. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may be believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We'll come back to that section, but just let that filter in as he's talking about these people who are in rebellion against the truth of God. Your persecutors will face the judgment of God. In this false teaching, it leads us to consider the end times when there will be a rebellion against God. Now in verse 13, Paul turns his attention to the Thessalonians and draws a purposeful contrast with those who reject the Gospel. If you have the ESV with you, probably if you have another version with you, verse 13, does it start a new paragraph? We have a heading there. We have the start of a new paragraph, a new thought. And in one sense it is because it's closing out the first half of the book. But you notice the word that starts verse 13. What is it? But. Why is but there? There's a direct connection to what has come before. And we we lose the sense of this passage if we don't think of what he's been saying. And talking about persecutors, talking about the judgment of God, falling, talking about this lawless rebellion against the Lord. But, he says, there's a contrast here. And what he will do is begin in verse 13 by giving thanksgiving for them in contrast to those in rebellion against God. In verse 15, he will exhort them to stand firm in the midst of these trials, And in verses 16 and 17, he will then offer a prayer to God in their behalf. So considering, first of all, that section of thanksgiving, and again, as we filter through this, we're considering what is he saying in instruction to those who are facing these particular trials and the severity of their situation. Paul's thanksgiving for them, we find verse 13, he says, "...but..." In contrast, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. We ought always to give thanks. Does that ring a bell? There's chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where he says that same thing. We ought to give thanks to God for you. It is our responsibility to see the grace of God working in the lives of fellow believers. If Jesus is doing this transforming work, and He's got a lot to do with every one of us, but as He is indeed doing that transforming work, we are to see it in one another's lives. We're to look for the grace of God operative in one another's lives. And so He says to them, we should, it is our Responsibility to see this work, and I see it in you, and so I give thanks to God for what is taking place in your life." He's drawing the contrast here with this word, but, to what precedes. What is that? Verse 10, he speaks of those who refuse to love the truth. Verse 11, those who believe what is false. Verse 12, those who do not believe the truth, but take pleasure in unrighteousness. In contrast to them, we are giving thanks for You. We should give thanks for You because that's not who You are. You do love the truth. You do not believe what is false. You do, n- do believe the truth and take pleasure in righteousness. So we give thanks to God for You as He builds them up and strengthens them and laying it out in two ideas about our salvation. The first is God chose to save us i say that of us he's writing to them god chose to save you but god chose to save those who have come to faith in christ we see here salvation in light of the past ephesians 1 4 says god chose us in christ before the foundation of the world he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. On the basis of God's will, and which was mysterious to us certainly, we did not deserve it. He did not simply respond to what He saw we would do, but in His mercies, He chose us. It's a very clear, simple statement of Scripture. Difficult for us to completely work out in our minds. But we must embrace what the truth says, what is revealed. I rejoice because God chose you. He chose you to be the first fruits. To be saved. So the consistent teaching of the Bible is that left to ourselves, we would not have chosen God. Our sin separates us from God. It blinds us to His glories. But for those whose eyes God chooses to open, to see His glories, we find that vision irresistibly glorious. We respond to it because of its wonder. God opens our eyes to that sight, to that vision. We must grasp this then, that God does not ultimately respond to our choice of Him. We are responding to His choice of us. That's difficult to grasp because as we experience salvation in Christ, we know we're reaching out to Him and embracing Him and trusting Him. And indeed we are. But as we do that, we must recognize as Revelation helps us and coaches us to understand why we reached out to Him and trusted Him, it just continues to reveal this, that though we do not deserve His grace, At the end of the day and for eternity, we will sing of the amazing, unmerited grace of God to us in Christ as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world because of His purposes, because of His will. God does not wish that any would perish, 1 Peter 3 and verse 9. Yet in the end, those who are saved are saved because He chose them as His own. And He chose these, He says, as the first fruits. That's probably just simply meaning there's others that will come to Christ in Thessalonica and in the region. But He chose you among the first to hear the Gospel, to respond to the Gospel. So how are we saved then, we ask. He's rejoicing that God has chosen them to be saved, we ask then, what is the means of this salvation? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. We are saved, first of all, by sanctification of the Spirit. Here I don't think we should take the word sanctification like we normally do, of growth in Christ. The believer is sanctified through growth. But rather, I think here we have the idea of salvation Uh, as we would consider it. It requires the cleansing power of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God cleansed you, washing you clean of your sin. I give thanks, says Paul, because the Spirit of God has effected that cleansing in your lives. I rejoice. God has chosen you. You are saved by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Secondly, notice there at the end of verse 13, by belief in the truth. So what God planned in eternity past is realized historically when we place our trust in the Gospel. Have you responded to that message? Do you know that you have? You've come to see the glorious, beautiful revelation that Jesus Christ paid the penalty of your sin. That He was crushed for our iniquities. And that in the mercies of God, receiving His work, He has risen from the dead and has now life as He reigns on high and brings to life those that trust Him. That message, that message of salvation has come to them and they've responded to it in repentance and faith, turning from their sin as we learn in chapter 1. God has chosen them to be saved by the gospel. Secondly, we see that God called us to receive glory. He's chosen us to be saved. He's called us to receive glory. Verse 14, To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He called you through our gospel. Paul's not saying, I have a special gospel just for me, but he means through our preaching, through our declaration of the truth of salvation. He has brought you to salvation. He called you where god elects and chooses in an eternity past he calls in time the glory then is the th- the third aspect of it we have the past aspect his choice his call in the present and in the future the glorification of the believer right now the resurrected christ lives in heaven with a glorified body that is free of all debilitation disease and death And because we are united by faith to Christ, we will become like Him in His glorified, resurrected state. When we enter eternity, the body of every genuine believer will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We don't know precisely what that looks like. We've never been able to lay eyes on it. We can't test it scientifically. But what the Scriptures reveal is if you know Christ as Savior, you're indwelt by His Spirit, you come into the presence of Christ, and you're transformed to reveal that glory of Jesus because you're united with His salvation. This is the hope that fuels our soul in this waking world. To be looking forward to our transformation. This is our center, our salvation in union with Christ. Again, think of what Paul has said here now to these people who are dealing with suffering. He points them to God's electing love. To the fact that God has a purpose through eternity to draw you out of this world, to give you salvation, to protect you for all eternity. That's your Father's love for you. Secondly, he points them to Christ's redemptive work as he uses that phrase, the Gospel. What Jesus has done to save us from our sin. And then thirdly, he points us to the Spirit's purifying power. Now you could see some Christian writing back and saying, hey Paul, we're having trouble here. You're just telling us stuff we already know. You're talking to us about basic Christian doctrine. We're having some real, real severe problems. Paul knows exactly what he's doing. And there's something for us here to grasp. The key to dealing with the challenges to our faith and the trials of our life is to come back to the truth, to know it, and to count it true. This is the anchor point that will withstand the gale force winds of assault against our faith. It is our salvation in Christ. It is this Gospel. We must continue to come back to it and find our grounding and our anchor there. Max Lucado's book, Six Hours One Friday, he tells the story of a hurricane bearing down on the coast of Florida. Wouldn't be a problem for us here, but for him it was because he lived in a houseboat uh, near Miami at the time as a young guy. And he was pretty scared about what this was going to mean. And so he and his buddies that lived in this houseboat for a time uh, yeah, only, um, people only live in a time for a houseboat, but this is one of the reasons. They got ropes and tied the thing all up and tied it to trees and tied it to moorings and did everything they could to try to save this, this uh, old dumpy houseboat from destruction from the hurricane. By the way, I'll, I'll ruin the story and say it never came. It passed by, but at any rate, he's preparing for it. And a, an, an old sailor came by and said, uh, you got this all wrong. These trees are going to get ripped down by the hurricane and you're going to have nothing left. You're going to go right with them. What you need to do is set out four anchors and anchor really deep. Put some slack on the ropes and pray for the best. That was His counsel. And I think there's good counsel to that. When we moor to things in this life, to things that are temporal and can be destroyed, we're hopeless in our life. But what we need to do is anchor our soul deep into the bedrock of God's truth. Because that never, ever shakes Paul does not instruct the Thessalonians to get in touch with their inner child and work out all their hang-ups. Does he? He does not coach them to rely upon themselves. He doesn't tell them to buck up and soldier on. He does not instruct them to get away and get some rest and relaxation and their pressures will become more bearable. Now, there might be nothing wrong with getting away and getting that rest, but that's not his answer. Listen, you need to really take care of yourself here. Get a vacation. Go away for a while. Get away from the persecution. What Paul does in the midst of these real, live trials is he says, Anchor deep. He points them to the fundamentals of their salvation in Christ. He instructs them to think carefully about who they are in Christ. And there's a transformation here that needs to take place in our lives as we work through the difficulties of life. What I need to come back to in any trial, in any heartache, in any temptation for my faith to be shaken and moved, I need to come back to God's electing love and I need to think on that. See, we can get these things in line and we know them for a test and we say, oh, I've heard this before. I know. Yes, I know how salvation works. I know what God has revealed. But what we don't do is put that into our lives, dealing with everyday life and every trial that we face, every point of bitterness, every point of discouragement, every point of external trial, come back to God's electing love. He has a purpose for us from eternity. He's chosen us in Christ to give us salvation we don't deserve. God loves me. And this makes all the difference. This is an anchor point to the soul. Jesus' redemptive work. The work that Christ has done. Remember what Paul says in Romans, if God did not spare His Son, how will He not with Him graciously give you all things? You're an heir of eternity in Christ. And that's the glory that awaits believers is to be again another anchor point. The focus of looking forward. The Spirit sanctifying power. I keep coming back to these truths. They are the filter through which I see everything. And they will hold. That's a center That's a foundation, an anchor point that will not give way. Is this where you anchor your faith to withstand the assault of this world in the trials, in the disappointments of life? Do we keep coming back here to our center? That's Paul's counsel, and I think there's much for us to learn there. And on the force of these considerations then, in verse 15, he makes a call to them, So brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm in the faith. It's a call for them to persevere in the faith. It's a call not to let persecution or false teaching knock them off their feet. The key here is not to stir up their internal fortitude as such, but the key here is to center in this Gospel. To stand firm there. Do you see the point? It's not stand firm in yourself. Come on, let's soldier on. You can handle this. You can get through this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying stand firm on these foundational truths in your security in Christ. That's where you'll find footing to stand. Stand firm there. Don't give up. Don't let your faith fall. But stand by the grace of God on your relationship in Christ. And then secondly, hold to the traditions of the faith. Now the word traditions, is it good or bad? Well, it just depends. Uh, Many times, traditions in the New Testament are bad. Uh, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for their traditions. We have traditions that really aren't all that helpful to us in our lives. But there's traditions that are absolutely essential. And here we're not talking about human tradition, but here we're talking about the traditions of faith that come by spoken apostolic word or apostolic letter. In other words, he's talking here in tradition about our faith. About the foundational truths that we've been reviewing. These basic, simple ideas of, the, of, of salvation, as complex as they are, simple to understand God's electing love, Jesus' redemptive work, the Holy Spirit's transforming power, the hope in eternity. These are the traditions that we pass on. We all smirk at tradition, and we probably should not take them too seriously. But we should also recognize as a church that we are in the world of passing on tradition. Not in the human sense, but in the sense that we are continuing to review the same truths over and over again so that we come to understand them better and better and pass them on to the next generation intact, in faithfulness to give to them these basic doctrinal truths. That's what we're about as a church. That's what we should be about. And it's times like this when the storms blow, That we come back to these foundational truths. We deepen them in times of ease and we deepen them in times of trial. As Paul says to them, hold to the tradition. Hold to the true doctrine, we might use that phrase. Falsehood blinds and it debilitates. Truth liberates and it empowers. Know the truth. Hold to it firmly. Then he breaks into prayer, which is, I don't think, any tag on or unnecessary addition at the end here, but very crucial to what he's doing as he counsels them and seeks to disciple them. He prays for them in verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, Word can mean encourage your hearts, and establish them in every good work and word. The call of the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions was an appropriate call, obviously, saying the right thing to them. However, they needed to faithfully endure their trials for the glory of God with the sense that they could not do so apart from Him. They needed to respond by obeying their calling. They could not, however, succeed in their own strength. And Paul knows it. Stand firm. Hold to the traditions, these basic doctrines of your salvation. And I'm praying that God will comfort your hearts. I'm praying that God will minister His grace to you and empower you to hold to this rock of the Gospel in the midst of these trials and not leave the faith. So his exhortation is backed up with earnest prayer. Early 19th century success writer Napoleon Hill argued that despair and hopelessness were negative habits. Might be some truth to that. But he said these negative habits can be overcome with two simple resolves. Here they are. I can and I will. Where is he pointing us? Look to you. I can and I will break the habit of hopelessness. And I think the Apostle Paul, if he was responding, might rightly say, no you can't and no you won't. Left to your own forces, you will enter hopelessness and despair you will enter left to yourself into the judgment of God in eternity. The answer does not come from within. The strength is not in us, but as God empowers us to honor His will, then we can stand firm in the faith and then we can hold to His Word. And so He is praying for them as He will then ask prayer for Himself. Together, praying for each other that God would do a work in us that we cannot accomplish in our own strength. As Paul's prayers reveal, our ultimate hope is in the character and faithfulness of our God. Notice there in verse 16, He loves us. He grants comfort, hope, and grace, which serve as anchor points for our soul. He's able to establish us in every good work and word. And those are two important words. Every good work doing what is right, establishing us in the right way, that we would be doing what we should do, responding to the salvation that He's given to us, and every good word, that we would be speaking the truth. People say we need to walk the talk. The good way to put it. I think we can turn that around and say both are necessary. We need to walk the talk and we need to talk the walk. In work and word. Both together, doing what God wants us to do and speaking the truths, the transforming truths of the gospel to the lost world and to one another as we center our souls in what Christ has done. Gordon Fee notes in comment on this passage that Christians are accustomed to saying, I'll pray for you. Paul certainly did that. But Paul did something else, he told them what he was praying. I don't know how often we do that. I say so often, I'll pray for you, but I don't tell people what I'm going to pray about. It would be a good habit to develop. Now Paul's obviously writing, but he lays out what his prayer is. In the end, the Thessalonians needed God to establish them in their walk. Paul knew it, and so he prayed for them that you would know that He is the One who loves you, who encourages your soul, who strengthens you, that He would support you to do what is not possible humanly. Circumstances of our lives may be very different than what the Thessalonians were facing, but the specter of despair can lurk in any trial that we face. There's some of us, perhaps, that are more oriented toward hopelessness. That's a a common challenge and a common problem. But I think those who are not so oriented face really the same battle. Every one of us, it's a battle with a lack of faith. It's a battle where we don't trust in the Gospel. So there's a person that, that is given to hopelessness and despair. What is the answer to trust the Gospel? to continue to come back to these salvation truths. The person who is not bent toward hopelessness and despair is often learning to depend upon themselves. That's just as dangerous. All of us need to realize that when I'm under assault, when there are trials that come into my life, when my faith is being challenged, here is a place where I can turn to myself, I can turn to false idols, or I can turn to the anchor points of my soul. The Father has chosen me to be His child. And that changes everything. The Son has bled on the cross to take my place and bear the punishment of eternity. What punishment can I face here? What can man do to me What Christ has borne is the judgment of God. To come back to the anchor point that the Spirit of God has washed me clean of my sin. Through His transforming power, by trust in the Gospel, He's remaking me and cleansing me, bringing conviction and change. I thank God for His presence in my life through His Spirit. I come back to this anchor point that I'm now a citizen of heaven. I have an eternal home. I will one day be glorified with the risen and reigning Christ. The struggle of faith we so often face is to think that these ideas have nothing to do with the trials of life that I'm facing. These ideas are simply what I must know to lead another person to Christ. These are the facts of my witness to the unbelieving world. Things I look back to with thanksgiving that God has indeed saved me, but they really don't affect the way that I live everyday life. Tell the Apostle Paul that. Tell the Thessalonian believers that. The truth is that these ideas have everything to do with everything if we're a genuine believer in Christ. These are our anchor points. This is our center It's not weakness in the Gospel. It's not some deficiency that falls short there. The deficiency is in us that we do not filter our lives through these great truths and hold to them tenaciously in the storms of life. When shaken by the pressures of trial and false doctrine, our stability comes from the Gospel. Not because it is our psychological escape mechanism, It comes from the Gospel because that is our identity as the new humanity created for glory in Jesus Christ. And so we pray for one another. We rejoice that God did not spare His Son but gave Him up for us all. He'll bring us through every trial to glory. And so we pray for one another. We pray to that end. We rejoice in that way as we learn to filter this life through this grid of our new identity in Jesus Christ. Stand firm. Thessalonians, he says, hold fast to the tradition. That's your anchor point. Hold on and pray for the morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, with thanksgiving, we bow before You. You have been so merciful to us in Christ. We rejoice in what has been accomplished for us in Him. Father, our hearts ache For those who do not know Christ in this saving way, I pray that you would open blind eyes to see this transforming power. And perhaps even some among us who've walked with us for some time who know these facts as they know their own history. But for them, they're just facts, they've not been transformed by the gospel. And I pray that You'd bring them to that light to see the glories of this message and to bring them transforming grace. I pray for those of us who know You, we bow with thanksgiving. We bow in shame. For we recognize how often we turn to ourselves and how often we spin in despair because we turn away from what You've done. As we repent, as our prayers ascend, as we set down anchors, I pray, Father, according to Your mercy, that You will deepen us in the faith and strengthen us for Your glory. You have given us a firm foundation. We praise You for that and ask that You will aid us to anchor to it, praying for one another as I pray for this assembly that You will bring this about for the glory of Your name. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.
1: Let's stand together as we sing. In response. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. God, and will still give thee aid, I'll strengthen thee, help and the What can man do to me when I've been redeemed by the blood? Let's sing one through. When through fiery trials thy path I
0: hear from the choir concerning the splendor of the Lord let's bow and just give thanks and dedicate our gifts to him father we pray that you'll receive our gifts with from grateful hearts as we rejoice in the salvation that you have provided in Christ in his name we pray amen please be seated for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're dismissed.